And since 2014, we've spent a lot of time uh, training people on how to virtually work and be more inclusive virtually, how to manage people in virtual teams, and of course, providing the tools, you know, the hardware, the software, uh, and the systems so that people could, could use this tool uh, in the way that they work. That prepared us very much for what happened, as you already mentioned, Agnes, one year ago in Italy, but it's happened basically everywhere uh, around the Barilla world and around the world. So this is the voice of Kristen Anderson. She's currently the Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer for Barilla. And we have this fantastic conversation with Kristen about how Barilla is managing the pandemic, how they have applied smart working, how they're using their employee resource groups to support employees through the lockdowns and the pandemic, not just in Italy, but around the world. Kristen has been a member of the DNI board since its formation in 2013. She reports directly to the CEO of Barilla and she's leading a 12-member DNI board comprised of internal members from eight key countries and two external advisors. Kristen joined Barilla in 2010 as VP for Research, based at the Barilla headquarters in Parma, Italy. And then she was also VP for R&D for the Asia, Africa, Australia region for Barilla based in Singapore. And she held a number of other exciting jobs and roles at other household brands from Coca-Cola company to Kraft Foods in Chicago, in Melbourne, Australia, but also in Shanghai, China. This episode has a lot of great insights. Kristen shares so generously what they have done at Barilla, and I can only encourage you to really take notes because there's lots that you could also implement at your organization. So thank you for tuning in and enjoy the conversation. Welcome to another episode of the Work Life Hub podcast. Each week we bring you an inspiring guest to help you discover the new world of work and learn how your organization can reach its full potential. Thank you for tuning in and spending some time with us today. To find out more about the Work Life Hub, please go to www.worklifehub.com. Welcome to the listeners of another episode of the Work Life Hub podcast. I'm your host, Agnes Uheretsky, and it's a great pleasure for me to be interviewing Kristen Anderson today. Um, hi, Kristen. You're joining me from Italy. Hi, Agnes. It's a pleasure to be here today. Um, so the reason we desperately wanted to have Kristen on the podcast was because Barilla has won the 2021 Catalyst Award for Advancing Women in the Workplace and Diversity and Inclusion. And we know that you've done great many things in the field in this area, especially also during the pandemic. But before we have that conversation, it would be great, I think, to set a little bit the scene for um, for listeners, even though I don't think we need to introduce Barilla, because I'm sure listeners, wherever they are in the world, open their kitchen cupboards and there will be some pasta from Barilla. Um, but maybe tell listeners, uh, Kristen, about your role and the geographical scope you're responsible for, and maybe the, the size of the workforce. I think that's an interesting info to have. It would be a pleasure, Agnes. Uh, and again, thank you for inviting me to join this podcast. So um, you can tell from my accent that probably I'm American. Uh, I'm here in, as you said, in Parma, Italy, which is where Barilla is headquartered. And it's where the Pietro Barilla, the founder of the company, had a small bread and pasta shop, shop in the center of the city 
and founded that in 1877. Um, my role is Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer. Uh, it's a global role for our company. Uh, I work for the CEO and the Diversity and Inclusion team. I have a virtual team from members in all of our regions. And our objective is to, is to make the company more inclusive and to bring more diverse talents into the organization. Uh, Barilla is a company of about 8,500 employees, half of them in Italy. Uh, but we also have big business, as you said, most people hopefully know our pasta and sauce, but have big business in Europe and America and also growing in Asia. Uh, we have 25 factories around the world and half of our workforce are people that colleagues that work in the factories. That's great. And, and so in the context of the ways of working or new ways of working, we know that Barilla uh, started with smart working in 2014. Smart working is the Italian um, legislative term, actually, for flexible working or agile working. And since then, it has also evolved um, and especially came quite handy when Italy went into the very strict lockdowns a year ago, around March uh, 2020. So may I ask you, um, Kristen, to tell listeners a little bit about the smart working uh, and then how it evolved and how it has prepared Barilla and Barilla employees and Barilla um, way of working for, for the lockdowns and the pandemic? Definitely. Um, one of the things that we uh, heard very strongly from our employees when we started focusing much more on uh, a journey of diversity and more inclusion is that people wanted more flexibility in the way they worked. We uh, developed, created in 2014, a survey, and we surveyed all of our employees and many questions in many different areas, but one was flexibility. And we expand, developed and expanded what we call smart working, so it's a flexible work program, uh, in 2014 to be a global program everywhere in the world. And since 2014, we've spent a lot of time uh, training people on how to virtually work and be more inclusive virtually, how to manage people in virtual teams, and of course, providing the tools, you know, the hardware, the software, uh, and the systems so that people could, could use this tool uh, in the way that they work. That prepared us very much for what happened, as you already mentioned, Agnes, uh, one year ago in Italy, but has happened basically everywhere uh, around the Barilla world and around the world uh, to prepare people for working in a different way. Um, and so it was evolved as we've expanded it. We've expanded the hours. And, and for, since one year ago, it's been basically 100% smart working for people that, that want to or when the offices are closed, depending on where the different countries are in terms of the phase of the, of the pandemic. Mm. What were the updates or adjustments? Uh, again, we, we've done surveys on how people feel the smart working has worked. What are the challenges so that we understand how better to equip uh, employees and managers to, to be able to interact and be inclusive virtually. Um, what we've heard is that in some ways, smart working has enabled everyone to have a, a stronger voice because you're not, um, you don't have a group of people in a, in a room and two people calling in virtually. Everyone is one person behind the laptop. Uh, and we know we can get Zoom burnout, but uh, one person behind the laptop with an equal voice. And I think this is one of the key elements that enabled us to have business continuity during this crisis. Because here in Italy, I have friends that work for other companies who had no flexible working. So when the pandemic hit, they basically either had to put uh, employees on unemployment, you know, unemployment uh, insurance, 
or they had to try to bring these gigantic monitors that you have in the office and ship them to people's houses. So smart working was one of two key elements that we say really helped us last year. That's great. That's that's really interesting to hear. Um, and you know what what makes me a little bit sad is that there are still many employers out there, even one year into the pandemic, who still you know reluctant of embracing flexible working, remote working um, for for their employees and protecting the the health and safety of of their employees. Um, and Agnes, you probably yeah. saw that there's been some surveys and some polls done recently. I'm asking employees, would you work for a company that didn't allow you to have some kind of flexible working? So, and it's that, it, you know, mostly people say no. Um, so I think that this is, you know, it's going to be just a basic necessity that people will expect a level of flexible working. And also we find it from our survey, from our people um, that work in the, in the factories, our shift worker colleagues, they also want flexibility because that's one of our questions on the survey. And it's not about working from home. The, the flexibility they want, because we ask, does Barilla provide the flexibility for you to manage your work and your outside work commitments? And the factories say yes. The factory workers say yes, because we allow them to, to, to change their shifts um, with, and mm-hmm. be able to, you know, be able to plan if they have an emergency to be able to change. That's really the, the shift change is really and, and that flexibility is really needed the, in the manufacturing environment. So true. And I'm very happy that you, you mentioned, uh, Kristen, the, the factory workers, because that's always a question in the dynamics of organizations where they have people working in the offices and people working on the shop floor and 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 to have an equity and fairness uh, to both in how they are able to have a better control of their working hours, their working time, their place of work. So thank you very much for, for bringing that in. No, you're definitely, we have to make sure that we're talking about flexibility, not just one program that might might be very good for people whose jobs can uh, can enable them to work from home, but to make sure we're providing flexibility for all the different types of roles. Absolutely. And, you know, I would like to maybe take the conversation now into the diversity and inclusion realm. Um, it's very interesting to see how uh the pandemic response and the flexible working, um, where it is nestled in in different organizations, either within HR, but in some cases under facilities, in some cases under the general management. And um, in our pre-podcast conversation, um, one thing that you told me really struck me um, is that you highlighted that there were some key uh, DNI supports that were in place before the pandemic um, that that played a very important role actually in um, the taking employees through um, the pandemic in their well-being, the business continuity. So, uh, would you mind telling listeners a little bit, Kristen, about the kind of DNI initiatives or supports that you had in place before the pandemic and that you saw really, you know came to, to, to take an important role during the pandemic? Sure, definitely. Uh, there's one element in that really was driven by the DNI uh, focus that has helped us connect and keep employees um, engaged and enable employees to express the difficulties that are have, have, they are having and to take that feedback into developing programs that have had a positive impact last year. And those are employee resource groups. I think maybe mm-hmm. many of your listeners are familiar with these groups. Some companies call them affinity networks or employee networks. 
But basically in 2015, we started a, a journey of um, educating our, our employees on what are employee resource groups and offering them the opportunity to form them. So this is not a top-down initiative. This is a bottoms-up initiative where employees can volunteer to form a group that is objective is to increase acceptance of a different of a, an element of diversity um, and make the company more open and inclusive to all elements of, of difference. So we started that journey in 2015. The employees, the employees asked in our America's um, region to form ERGs on specific different inclusion of LGBT community and allies, uh, conclusion of, uh, of gender um, balance and work-life balance and also to have inclusion of people of different race and ethnicity plus allies. So the other element is you don't need to be a member of that community to join. You join because you are actually interested in opening up the culture to make it more inclusive. And since 2015, we went from one ERG of, of 10 people to now having more than 1,300 people, uh, employees around the world and 15 ERGs in all of our regions. And what we found is these ERGs were really the big driver of inclusion and uh, empathy to listen to other of the employees in their groups uh, and what the problems that we're facing in all different regions, in all different countries, and then to come back to the DNI uh, board and HR and say, this is what the employees are saying. This is what we need to do to support them during this very difficult year. And HR uh, was very happy to have the ERGs almost as a, you know, a, a focus group. Instead of having to do focus groups, we use them already as a sounding board and as a feedback mechanism. And HR then was very quick uh, to take some of that feedback and develop programs like, for example, one in Italy called Altuo Fianco, which means at your side. It's a program where you can call one number to get support um, for tutoring your child or to have elderly care or to, you know, to have, a, you know, babysitting and of course, always in a safe distance with masks, always with the safety in mind, because people needed immediate kind of support and still do. So the program is still going. So that's that's really, I think, what we all, from a business perspective and our regional president say, was a very two drivers that enabled us to, to have continuity last year and, and have employees engaged the smart working flexibility program and our employee resource groups. So the employee resource groups were basically your eyes and ears on the ground. Yes, eyes and ears on the ground because those groups are open to everyone in, in the region or in the country. So we have a group in Russia called Bridge mm -hmm. and it has members from our factory. We have a pasta uh, factory, pasta and, and bakery products in outside of Moscow. And we have an office in Moscow so they could connect. They have uh, virtual events, but also just uh, feedback and, and ways for people to listen and understand the issues that people are, are facing around the world. I mean, in a way, it also sounds like a very interesting laboratory of some sorts of, of these DNI initiatives. Uh, firstly, because employee resource groups, um, I think, are very much a, a US based um, type of initiative, something that we haven't really seen across Europe. I don't know if it's because of the strong um, uh, trade union presence in some of the sectors, but, but definitely something relatively new and also for you to see whether what employees need are different in the different regions or there are some universal needs of employees in such a situation no you you, you touch on a very interesting two very interesting points agnes so first of all um we found that the needs are different um 
that some are some are global. There's some global needs, mm-hmm. um, but definitely very local. Um, mm-hmm. Basically, uh, these groups have have been the, as you said, the, the the sounding board, the ones that bring the feedback that also make suggestions on how to improve mm-hmm. and open the environment. And we've seen that these groups have increased the exception of acceptance of differences in all of our geographies because we measure this, we measure that in our DNI survey every two years. Uh, they've really been instrumental in in making the whole environment more inclusive because, uh, as I said, many of the members when they first start the uh, ERGs or join the ERGs are allies. They don't, at the beginning, did not feel comfortable maybe saying that they have a, they have a disability or that they right. are a member of the LGBT community. So many, mo- almost everyone came as an ally first. Mm-hmm. But then that's the, the, that's the very positive of these ERGs because think about it as a safe zone. So in that, in that group, people start then expressing their, bringing their authentic self to work and expressing their true self and not, and not, uh, uh, hiding and having to hide their differences. And then pretty soon, you know, that can spread outside of the ERGs and the ERGs are intersectionality that they actually work together. But it, it, it was a process and you can't, it's not a cut and paste. Uh, we started, the Americas uh, employees asked first to form some, but when we wanted to then bring, you know, encourage forming them outside of the U.S., we realized we really need to do a lot of explanation about, you know, an education about what's the benefit to you as an employee and to the company, the business benefit of the company to have these employee groups, Uh, because it wasn't, it's not natural. It's not every culture doesn't just say, yes, I can understand how these, these groups could be beneficial. And now in our journey, we have ERGs in our factories, uh, which include our, our shift workers, because many companies have them in factories, but they include just the managerial level. We have specific factory ERGs, who are really making a difference not only in the culture but almost as a as identifying improvement areas. Um, we have one in uh, ERG in our sales force in France. So we're trying uh, different types of models and trying, and we really believe this is a way to not only engage employees but make the definitely culture change that will eventually be so beneficial for our business. That's so interesting, and you know, listening to you, um, you know, talk about the ERGs, but also before talking about smart working and flexibility, I'm getting a little bit the feeling that Barilla doesn't shy away from experimenting and trying things and seeing what works and what doesn't work. I think that's that's really the, the point about diversity and inclusion. It is not one big program or one big step that, that then will open up the, the culture to be more inclusive. You need to try all of the different um, levers to to engaging more employees so for sure you need leadership commitment from the top and i'm very fortunate uh, to work for the ceo and that our chairman uh, guido barilla is on our dni board so you have a lot of leadership commitment from senior leaders Uh, we have these leaders as executive sponsors of the ergs and the ergs Mm. are the ground ground swelling passion and energy that can make the change uh, faster also proposing programs that help employees and, and learning from each other. So we, we do a lot of sharing between the ERG. So they're taking ideas from an ERG in France and someone in, in, in Greece can say, the Greece uh, Armonia ERG say, well, that's a great program. I think it might work for us and, and adapting that. It definitely accelerates accelerates change. That's great. It's so, it's so nice to hear. And in a way, I'm always thinking that either a company gets it and has it very much driven from the top, or if there is no um, openness from senior leadership, 
it's very difficult to push these in- initiatives through from, from the bottom up. I'm not saying it's impossible, but the way uh, senior leaders, the owners, the CEO is approaching this, how they're modeling it is just absolutely vital. Yeah, so really we found the lesson that we learned is you need leadership commitment, then you need employee engagement, and you need to take a lot of feedback. So you need to mm-hmm. learn from others uh, that have been working on DNI and uh, longer than we have. So other companies, organizations that we can partner with that have to share with us best practices, um, and then get employee feedback. So the survey has been instrumental for us in, in continuously getting the feedback on what do we need to work on? And we make sure that we, you know, every two years, we survey people, uh, our employees. Then we tell them what you, what the employee said. So we make sure we cascade it because people want to take surveys, but they want to hear what did everyone say. And then they want to know what the company is going to do and the DNI co- community is going to do to help in, in certain focus areas of improvement. Absolutely. And and I think these are the the three milestones or steps when it can go wrong. So first, if you do not ask employees, uh, just assume what they need. You know, that's 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 the first uh, that's the first mistake. Second mistake is asking people, but not giving this closing this feedback loop by telling them what everyone said, just sitting somehow on the data. And the third is not acting on it. Right. And that's, I think, where there's really a risk of making employees disengaged and cynical about, okay, so they asked us what we want and nothing's happening, just like usual. And unfortunately, we see this still in a number of organizations. So it's so great to hear that you're so strategic and committed uh, to this because I think these are three very, very key points where employees can be engaged and get engaged or where they can be disengaged. I think you, th- this was definitely our lesson. Is, and, and I'm not saying that it, it definitely we have a lot of work to do. It's more the learnings that we've had since our first survey in 2014, where we didn't uh, do as much communication after the survey to tell people exactly what you said. What did, What is the global areas of strength and improvement areas? What are we going to then do? Because you can't do all of them at one time. No. So a fo- few focus areas. We learned over the years and over four, four different surveys, and we're going to run another survey this year is that you really need to communicate, 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 and cascade it. And that's a, cascading is another way to get uh, informal feedback during these kind of focus group sessions where we cascade the results. So there's a lot of opportunity to use the data. And I think that, you know, we learned that we really needed to focus a lot on that. Or you're, you're going to not have people want to, to give feedback anymore. As you said, I, I gave my feedback. I don't know where it went. Uh, I don't see anything changing. So it's not, uh, it's not useful for you to... Exactly, yeah. why bother? Mm-hmm. So you already touched now upon a little bit the lessons learned, and I'm so keen to hear from you about you've had now this one year of of really putting smart working to the test and seeing how the employee resource groups worked, and 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 so you already got a lot of positive um, reinforcement that this was already the great way to go because these have served us in times of this this great crisis, but. How are you going to take what's going on now and and integrate it into the future plans? Um, you know, what are some of the things that you say, okay, so this is something that's probably going to change for us or this is something that we're going to be paying more uh, attention to. So how are you using these lessons learned going forward? 
Yeah, I think this is a question probably that uh, many, many companies are facing right now is, you know, we're not going to go back to quote unquote normal. There isn't any normal and it's not going to ever go back to the way it used to be. Although probably many people would like it to. <laughs> yeah. We would like to have the office the way it used to, a social and ability to, you know, to connect, uh, you know, face to face. But we realize there's going to be a new way of working. And I'm, I'm sure this is nothing new for your listeners. Um, right now, we're in the process of basically saying, how do we redesign the offices to be collaboration and culture centers, you know, for communication amongst teams and our employees have, we did a, a separate survey some months ago at, at last end of last year, asking people specifically about the tasks that they do during the workday and how many of them would be better done at home or in, mm-hmm. in a virtual way and how many of them are, are need collaboration with others. So that we get a sense for how, how much time do people spend in the office, are going to want to spend in the office, need to spend in the office if they can in the future. And, and how much time, you know, will they spending on individual tasks? And that's the way that, again, with feedback, we can design the, the new way of working. The, the piece that we learned a lot last year is you have to be very conscious about inclusion. You can't just assume that we're going to be equally inclusive of someone who's in the office in, in presence versus someone who, who needs to and wants to stay virtual maybe, uh, you know, most of the days, mm-hmm. you can have a tendency to, you know, value the people that we see in person, and maybe unconsciously biased towards those people giving them the projects or giving them the informal, you know, coaching and mentoring uh, over a lunch or over the coffee machine. And those people that are not in presence can be, you know, somewhat forgotten or not uh, as valued in an unconscious way. So we need to put, you know, these um, ways to include in a formalized way. And we spent last year, because everything was virtual, doing a lot of webinars on inclusive language, inclusive behaviors, focusing on the virtual world, uh, but also the in-presence world in the office. So we can try to start giving hints to employees on how they can continue their inclusion journey uh, personally to be more inclusive in their language and behavior. I think you're raising such an important point. And... um... I've been reading quite a lot of articles lately that touch upon um, the road to success and the, the gender difference between men and women um, about, you know, speaking up, uh, being active. And I wonder whether, and I don't know if this is something you also tackled or you also found, but I wonder if this is going to have also uh, an impact on on somehow the well-established strategies that people used to use to get ahead in their careers and get ahead at work. Um, You know, those who have been more active, more present, more visible versus those who are maybe holding back a little bit more or, and and I wonder whether this dynamics is going to be also shaped or, or changed by, by, by going forward and, and, perhaps even managers or HR need to be very mindful of not letting people slip somehow into, you know, obscurity online and and just deal with those that are very visible, very active, very present online. And and how do you balance that out to give this equal space and and platform for everybody? I don't know if this makes sense. <laughs> no, it does make sense and it's something that we feel um is is an area to really focus on. Because again, if we do not think about it, focus on it consciously, we can have this unconscious bias coming in. We know when we're stressed, when there's times of crisis, you know, well, there's more bias and discrimination. So we know that disproportionately women have been affected by the pandemic in terms of being, you know, primary caregivers, you know, having to stay home, helping kids with schooling, 
um, you know, and, and even exiting the workforce in some countries. I think we've all read the articles. So, you know, going forward, what keeps me up at night is the fact that we don't want to take steps backwards in inclusion. We don't want to, you know, have less diversity of our workforce because people don't have the tools and the flexibility and the support to be able to manage everything. And that we, we, we fall into what you just said, which is valuing people that are there in presence. So we need to make sure that we are, you know, very conscious of this. We actually look at it. So in like performance reviews, in discussions about people's uh, potential, are we, are we using language that is more biased where we're talking about that person was in the office or that person I saw them or, so we make sure that we really challenge ourselves not to take steps backwards, but to use it to go forward as a, as a learning experience. And specifically for certain part, certain differences like gender or people, uh, racial and ethnicity, where they could be disproportionately affected by the, by the crisis and the pandemic, even uh, you know, in, the, in the near future as well this year. And, and also um, uh, the culture of the country where you're coming from, you know, some countries uh, are, if we're looking at the work of Hofstede, you're just more assertive and, and some are more shy. And, and how can, you know, how to balance that out in a, in a global context of, of somehow some nationalities having maybe an unfair advantage uh, just because of the way they've been brought up in school, in their families, how they assert themselves versus those who are perhaps more holding back and, and, and coming from that kind of culture. You're right, Agnes, and, and we're also familiar with the you know the cultural cultural elements of, of diversity um, from Hofstetter and, and Kumpanars. The other piece is that there's the gender difference. I mean, we know the studies and the data show that when a woman is 85% capable, she has 85% of the skills for a promotion for a, a job at a level higher. Um, we will tend to say we're not ready, where men have 40 to 50% of the skills they'll say yeah. we're ready. So there's also that. There's the cultural elements, but there's a gender differences. And so all of these elements come into play. And, and, and in a virtual working way where we're not in the office as much, could definitely also be a factor in not as much inclusion. So we I think it's about, it's about any kind of bias, whether it's conscious or unconscious. We have to first have some self-awareness that it could, it could potentially uh, be more exclusionary and more discriminatory. So we need to be aware of it and take it into effect in what we do and, and what we've learned from this last year and what we're going to do in the future. Would you say that... Um what you heard maybe from team leaders or managers in the past year, did they find managing people more difficult or more challenging in this virtual uh, way? Because you have to actively go out maybe and get some people, draw them in or I yeah, guess so, so right? <laughs> I guess they found yeah, it. And we, we, we did get lots of mixed feedback. Some feedback uh -huh. on the positive side is that, um, you, you know, we had smart working, but it wasn't a hundred percent of the time. And for some uh, jobs, it was very limited. So people say this, this job needs to have more presence in the office. When we needed to go 100% smart working, it, it actually challenged us to, you know, our assumptions. Mm -hmm. Some jobs, and I'm not talking the shift workers in the manufacturing facilities, but some other jobs, which we thought needed to have much more presence in the office, we realized we could be pretty effective uh, doing it virtually. So there was some learnings and challenging assumptions. But on the other side, when you have uh, certain cultures where a lot of the way you manage people is is face to face, where you kind of see them every day and a lot of things change and your you know your your interactions, it's more like a, a personal way of managing versus managing just the deliverables. And there's a cultural element to that. It can be challenging, and people saying 
you know, it's so tiring to always be in front of the laptop and, and you know, interacting with people. And we know how it, it gives us this burnout um, to try to stay connected to people, uh, to, my, to my teams. And the teams can't get together. So I, I think this is what a lot of your listeners are also struggling with and mm-hmm. hearing from their managers and employees. So again, it comes back to the how do we design the way going forward that there's some tasks which are much more productive maybe by ourselves um, in at home where it's you know it's more flexible and there's certain things that we really need that interaction that we're we're lacking right now with people in 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 the safe distance in a safe way uh, that's that's the, the piece that the objective going forward it's really design design the work life to to be meeting those two different goals and be as productive as possible. Yeah, I, and and I totally agree because this um, duality of both advantages and disadvantages seems to really carry across a lot of these um, uh, aspects of the pandemic and of working from home, and and that's I think a a bias that we have this binary way of thinking something's either good or bad, and when we have these mixed situations, um, we have to adapt and adjust and. And, and somehow amplify the good and the positives and, and tackle what, what are the challenges and the negative. And, and that puts, I guess, also a lot of pressure on everyone to, to navigate these, uh, this duality. And I think, it, I guess, is what you said before, is what are the lessons learned from a very difficult year? And this year is also challenging as yes. well. It's not, it's not you know, immediately becoming uh, less challenging. It's still challenging. Um, what is formalized the lessons learned. We actually had a think tank team, uh, which is cross-functional, cross-regional, all different cultures working together to formalize the learnings about 2020. So learnings on the new consumer, learnings on more flexible supply chains and, and learnings on the way of working. And, and so, you know, if we just forget the things that uh, we learned and don't take them into the new way of, wor- of, of working, it will be a loss because there are things we learned and that we can apply to 2021 going forward. That's great. It's it's so interesting to to hear all these initiatives and very thoughtful ways of proceeding in the crisis. Um, and I would have still a lot of other questions, but unfortunately, time is always going very fast uh, on the podcast. So before we go to the the last question, Kristen, may I ask you to maybe. Um, direct the, the listeners to some resources they could discover about Barilla and your work and maybe also where they could get in touch with you? No, it's, it, yeah, it's a pleasure. Um, I, to get in touch with me, I'm on LinkedIn. So I'd be happy if anyone has questions or wanted to connect and share learnings because you know, our objective in doing, you know, having this discussion and podcast is to learn from others because, again, we, we already learned a lot. That's how we've been able to, to progress in our journey, but we have a lot more work to do. So it's it's a not an ending journey. It's and, and we always say it's it's about progression, not perfection. So we're making progress, and we want to learn from others. So please contact me on LinkedIn, and there also is a, a short three minute video that goes through our DNI journey. It's on YouTube, so you can just Google Barilla DNI journey video, and you can see it. It just has some of the elements of things that, again that we learned, um, and because we've made mistakes along the way, and we've learned, and, and we would like to continue to learn from others. That's great. So, so thanks a lot for, for sharing that. Now, the last question is, is pretty much always the same here, um, which is about based on your insight and your experience, maybe giving advice to, to other senior leaders, other senior DNI leaders out there 
who may be still sitting on the fence or waiting for the pandemic to pass, to return back to normal. Based on everything you, you have learned, would you say there's one thing you definitely would like to 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 tell uh, others to to take away? I think the one thing is what I alluded to before in this uh, group that we had the think tank team. What we heard from our employees about the new way of working, and it was very very clear. They wanted empathetic, inclusive, authentic people managers to lead them. Uh, they they are looking for people who can individually. Uh, connect with them and understand, you know, on an individual basis, their needs and be a people manager, not be a subject matter expert, not be the technical expert in any area, but to really help them develop and to, to really listen to them and understand their concerns and to take their feedback, you know, to be open and inclusive. So I think the, the view that we wanted to go back to the way it was is, first of all, we know that's not going to happen. And it's also not the, not the point. The point is to take what people are saying that didn't work and did work and make that be part of the new way of working. And what we heard at Barilla is that people want uh, people managers, empathetic leaders, uh, you know, inclusive leaders. That's great. I think that's really thoughtful advice and, and also very, very hard to implement. But, but, but I think we all at this stage can use a lot more empathy and authenticity and, and, um, an understanding of, you know, we are all going through this and this is very, very hard. Um, but but I love that. Thank you you're, so you're much. You're right, Agnes. I mean, you can't just tell people be more empathetic, be more inclusive. And so we, we have, we're in the process of rolling out an inclusive leadership program that's been, that's been modified and adjusted based on the experiences of last year. So we also have to give people the tools. That's but, great. You know, you have to say the message and then the tools. Absolutely, absolutely. But But I think it's also great to have this kind of candor where people really say what they need. Um, that's that's great. So thank you so much, Kristen, for, for joining me on this conversation, on this podcast. It has been so insightful and really so interesting. And I'm very, very grateful to you that you so generously opened up about this and, and shared with me and, and the listeners. So thank you very, very much. Well, it was a pleasure and uh, hope to hear from others. We can learn and all be more inclusive together. Uh, thank you for the invitation.